Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Medical Device Success Podcast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Now, before we get to today's episode, I want to thank all of you for your support throughout 2021. The podcast audience has continued to grow, and we have maintained our feed spot ranking of the second most popular medical device podcast. Not bad when you consider this is a home-produced program without the backing of a media company or commercial enterprise. The best support you can give me is to share this podcast with a colleague using the share link on your preferred podcast platform. Again, thank you very much. Today's episode is Intro to Value-Based Care Part 2. And once again, our guest to finish this introduction is Barbara Strain, founder and principal of Barbara Strain Consulting. Prior to her move into consulting, Barbara was on the provider side of the healthcare equation as director of supply chain analytics and later director of value management at the University of Virginia Health System. She is also a founding member of AHVAP, which is the Association of Healthcare Value Analysis Professionals. Needless to say, she knows what she's talking about. In the last episode, we covered the history of value-based care, including discussion of various government cost containment and cost mitigation measures that are currently in place. Now we dig further into this trend towards value-based care and what medtech companies can do to consider this trend in their product development, marketing, and sales efforts. I want to give another warm welcome to new members of the medtech leaders community. Barbara is a member and can be reached within the community. For more information on this community, go to medtechleaders.net. Additional contact information for Barbara will be in the show notes. Now let's finish up this two-part introductory series with Barbara to be sure we understand value-based care and what we as medtech professionals can do to be constructive, profitable, and value-added participants in this movement. Is value-based care, so we know the bundle is a specific thing, Mm -hmm. you know, initiated by the government. Mm-hmm. as a way to try to control costs. And we talked about that earlier. So is value-based care um, a government-initiated um, program or is it a cultural shift in, amongst providers where they know that they need to take a totally different approach and this approach is called value-based care as opposed to yeah. fee-for-service? Is that what it is? Mostly. It has a little bit of government sort of in there because when you looked at those bundles, if you look at some other things, you're really trying to get to that value-based care. The, you know, the the, um, quadruple aim and all those sorts of things. But what happens in that is that you can do it yourself but you payers have value-based 
care contracting. Okay. So you can contract for that with payers, different types of payers and that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. So that'd be the, so it, it's not something that has been mandated by CMS, so to speak, as, as a program, but it's a, it's a measure um, yes. and sort of a cultural management initiative for a healthcare system, so to speak. And, um, and you're, as you're saying, the, the insurance payers have glommed onto it and are saying, yeah, we'll make a deal with you XYZ hospital system. Uh, but this is, uh, it's almost like bundles, but they're saying this is what we expect to pay for uh, this population of uh, these, this population right. of patients that yeah. are coming through your hospital. Right. Because then okay. you kind of get to accountable care organizations that were part of ACA. And then you uh -huh. get to um, other value-based care organizations that are, that are out there. But the five things that value-based care does uh, for you is patients actually spend less and get better health. And providers actually become more efficient and get patient satisfaction. So you are probably getting maybe, hopefully more patients because you're doing well and you can look at a lot of these results and things. And then uh, payers have then these cost controls and they actually then help reduce risk. Because if you think about it, what came out with after we really have started to pick through what's happening, you know, during COVID and supply chain and variety of things is it's mitigating risks. So that's what a lot of these programs really do. And then the suppliers help to align dollars to outcome. So again, we're putting those suppliers and manufacturing in here is it's not just, oh, great, COVID's over and we didn't do much and value-based care is not really taken off. So we're just going to do fee for service and really, you know, help sell all these widgets, right? And have all these goals where the goals could, oh, it sounds counterintuitive. Maybe we're selling less of them because we're doing better. You know, so we're gaining more in people being well. Right. And then the last is all of society. And, and we've kind of learned that from COVID is all of society really gets uh, reduced dollars. So it's, it's more money in society's pockets as well as overall health, which means that employers, whether they're small businesses or other size, how are they purchasing insurance for their employees? So it's not just I'm, you know, Joan Q. Public and I'm out getting insurance, but I might work for somebody and I expect that I'm going to get a benefit of insurance. Either I'm getting, you know, dollars or one of those uh, programs of uh, healthcare insurance, you know, programs or others. But what am I paying that portion of that insurance? And then where can I get health care? Can I pick whatever health care physician I want? Do I have to get in market? Uh, can I go get surgery wherever I want? So you think of like Walmart. 
One of the models that they use is my employees need hip surgery. Well, I'm going to search around the country for who has some of the best, you know, goals and they've met outcomes and costs and that sort of thing. And it's going to be cheaper for me to give my employee um, uh, airplane ticket or a train ticket or money for gas and have them go get it there and get better care than I would be if I did it in my community. So it has all of those aspects to it. Well, one one comment I want to make, and just to get your feedback, is uh-huh. in, in preparing because this is part of a, a series on value based care. I'm going to have, you know, mm-hmm. this interview with you, and then I have, I'm going to have uh, maybe one or two providers, and then I want you know manufacturer. One of the um, guys I was talking to that I hope to interview for part of the series. He's a VP of Population Health. He told me that it took him about four years to get his hospital uh, system positioned correctly to uh, be, you know, to be effective, you know, from the quality standpoints and all the value care type of measurements. Is this just an inertia issue when you have so many, like, let's say it's a hospital system and it has uh, five or six um hospitals, a bunch of ambulatory care centers, a whole bunch of physician employees. Is this, is this just inertia to get people um, going that direction? Why does it take, you know, three, four or five years to start really seeing the results? A lot of it is educating everybody in your health system. Yeah, It's not just educating, you know, your, you know, high level folks or, your directors of departments, it's educating everybody because it's going to touch everybody, no matter what they do in your health system. And I guess eventually it it means you have to educate the public that's coming through the system. Absolutely. Okay. So you've got to just keep doing education and things, but it's understanding also and making sure you have infrastructure to do this. And sometimes that's the hardest piece is, what is my infrastructure? So do you have all of the different computer systems or databases or the right people to do the data, you know, decision support? Do I make or buy it? And do I buy it for a period of time so I understand it, I can get started, but now I know maybe I need a a small team of folks that are educated now in being able to pull this kind of data How often do we do it? What do we um, sort of communicate that? So it's got to permeate everything. It also has to be relationships. So if you haven't already done all the relationships with either either physicians that uh, are employed by you or physicians that are private physicians that come and use your facilities, and then it's the payers, and it is your patients, and where are they coming from? You know, do you have an accountable care organization that was set up specifically to look at large populations that you voluntarily, you know, pulled together? And and what is that looking like? And what is that health? Because you could pull together, like, if you didn't have children's services, or you didn't have... Um, 
minimally invasive surgeries or whatever, you could all sort of gather together and you would share this population and, and do everything as an accountable care organization. And you would get rewarded by the government for savings and various things, or you would split the savings up. But the thing of it is, is there's a lot of those folks who had already done a lot of work, so it didn't look like they saved as much. And some of them sort of retreated from accountable care organizations while others still sort of congregated into them. There's also uh, smaller organizations like uh, I'm in one with my uh, provider. It, it's called Privia, and it has you know uh, so many different practitioners in it and everything. But they get all of the data feeds, and they understand and learn from people in your region what are good uh, prescription practices, what are people doing about how are they treating X, Y, and Z and a variety of things. So I've got an app for that. So I'm on there a lot. I can communicate anytime by sending text and doing a variety of things. There's another group called the Chin Medical, which I am fascinated by their model because they just do Medicare patients because it's the largest population right now. All of us baby sure. boomers are going to hang around for a very long time, and we keep gathering more of them into Medicare and that sort of thing. And a lot of these things come out of Medicare. So tangentially or whether uh, 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 sort of purposefully, they are part of government at some point and some sort of influence. But this group, the Chen Medical Group, they only take care of Medicare patients and they only have populations of about 400 folks. So what they're able to do is spend more quality time with those folks where they live in their community and they follow them for long periods of time. So they've proven that they don't have to seek the big hospital you know, the last part of your life, you're not spending so much time at offices and you're not spending as much time in uh, ICUs and things. And so the model has proven they, they're around in other states and, and different cities and things like that and have branched out because they've done so well. But it's the approach to medicine because they like to spend time every month with their patients, not just once a year when you have, you know, your nurse Medicare. We have your physical and, or whatever. And they take on the risk, the actual okay. medical practice, not the other. So there's like different forms of risk. So back to that risk sort of equation, is it depending on who's taking on the risk for the payment and then the care is how the models really go, whether they're okay. ACOs or other models and things like that. So it's important to know all those things as you're a manufacturer and, and a provider of other services is because if all of a sudden there's a lot of models, say like the Chen model or the Privia model, you might be not selling very much into those areas because blood pressure cuffs and tongue depressors and 
stethoscopes and a few, you know, um, point of care tests and things like that don't cost very much. You're not selling things, you know, you're doing scales and things to help them, you know, get those milestones of how they're really doing. And we're trying to keep people out of the hospital. So you're not really selling that much high dollar stuff into the hospital. So it's going to be, you asked me before about the shift from fee-for-service to this. It's yeah. still going to be a while, but I think uh, one of my colleagues said, um, let's not let a good pandemic go to waste. <laughs> so we're learning a lot. Yeah. This morning, was it this morning or yesterday? Uh, yesterday morning, I had a telehealth visit with my primary care physician. I had all my lab work done. I had my uh, Medicare nurse visit done. And he said, let's just go over your lab results and talk about things. So we had, a, I sat right here, just like I'm sitting with you. I had a different background for one of those visits. Yeah. <laughs> but we just had a great chat. And I could, I felt I could openly feel like I had the time to really ask things, tell them things, rather than in a fee-for-service and all the documentation you have to do, you might get 15 minutes with right. a patient. Okay. It's an yeah. amazing process. No, I, I agree 100%. So we're sort of headed in the direction of, you know, how do you look at this as a manufacturer or a service provider to the healthcare systems? And or and or practitioners. So if you are a um, let's say a, a med tech manufacturer of some type of technology, or it could be a combined drug and device, right? How how does this change the way that you go into uh, let's say an IDN that's definitely you know working their way into robust population health and to you know value based care? How how is your how is this going to change your sales approach? Maybe your product development approach, mm -hmm. and a number of things. How is this going to change that stuff? So kind of, there's two things that you look at. One, if you go in there today and you have something that's going to allow for um, someone to go home far earlier out of the hospital setting into their home and either be monitored at home or they were monitored so effectively in the hospital using your device or the adjunct care using their device or service that they're able to get up on their own and be self-sufficient and go home. So now you're helping the hospitals save that money. So if they're doing some sort of bundle or if they're doing put together their own sort of uh, we have to reduce length of stay from five days to two. How are we going to do that? Because we can't keep this up because we don't have human beings like nurses and others to take care of folks. So people are going to really look at that. The other thing is then how do we have them stay at home? And does the device transport itself easily into the home setting or a nursing home setting or a long-term care setting 
or even assisted living setting very well. So those are some of the things that they have to really think about. Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny to say is that there are people who have said over years and years and years that if they had a certain either product or a certain type of service or even a consumer business, I hope I get put out of business because it means we've done a really good job. Um, I don't advise that to a lot of people, but you really do have to look at because so many of these things are have an arc and yeah. you have to understand what that arc is. Some of the devices or um, AI or other handhelds or uh, monitoring devices that data can be gathered in the home and then have telehealth or whatever, it's going to take a long time before you affect this whole big chronic disease population. So you're not going to go out of business for a very, very, very long time. And then you want to keep them in that state. But there are some that amazingly are in such a fast arc of development. And the FDA is really churning out a lot of these breakthrough and de novo and drug um, device combinations that, you know, their criteria is they're really going to make a difference. And they can right. make a difference in a very short amount of time, which may just shorten that arc. But right. you always want to make sure that whatever is put in place can do maintenance so that you don't get back into the long arcs and stuff again. So it has to be actionable uh, devices or services, but it also has to have a longevity to it. It can't just be, oh, this is great. And then in 10 more years, we built it back up because we we didn't do something we should have. And now it's all gotten back out there again. Right. And then I guess another thing to think about in terms of what you provide, and it, you know, this would only apply to certain technologies, but would be uh, ease of communication with <clears throat> uh, data systems w yes. so that they can then apply AI to the data that your device, you know, collects. Um, yes. And, that might help. Uh, like I'm just fascinated by the uh, sepsis watch out of Duke. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sepsis is a big killer in the hospital and mm -hmm. they can see it coming hours ahead of be before it yes. strikes and, you know, intervene at that time and save somebody's life. So um, mm -hmm. um, do you have a device that will contribute to that, you know, contribute uh, easily to providing that information, not just, collecting some material, but maybe doing something to, you know, send the data about that uh, diagnostic or that information that's been collected. So, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. And there's a lot of uh, wearable sensor technology yeah. being developed. It's extremely, extremely um, fascinating that is connected then to that data collection and then all the AI in the background. And not only can it happen in the hospital, but it can also happen at home. Like if you've been treated for something, but there's no reason for you to be in the hospital while you're either on treatments or post-treatments. But if you do this, it'll alert both the patient or the consumer and the physician 
and maybe even emergency departments or something that, hey, we've put together three key things and you need to call somebody and now, and they can either prescribe something based on what they're seeing or whether and keep you at home. So you're not heading down to the emergency room and stuff. Excellent. Okay. And then, um, and I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but this is where, this is where the concept of a value analysis package becomes so important Mm -hmm. so that you understand um, what you need to communicate to the hospital system and to their value analysis committee or whatever they call their committee. Correct. Yeah, correct. You know, not everybody may have, like you said, not everybody might call something value analysis. They might call it clinical integration where who knows what they call it, but somewhere in there, uh, I'm going to say the the plural we for value analysis is we have sort of a way we approach this that actually works. And it's amazing. It works every time. Uh, It's that clinical-based evidence. So a lot of these new folks that might be, you know, listening when you broadcast this, well, I don't have any clinical-based evidence. You know, we've done this, this, and this, and all I have is that. Well, we had to learn in value analysis through working with various physicians and researchers and and some third-party sort of objective uh, gathers of data and things that Sometimes you got to take the leap off of the edge of the building in order to get better. And hopefully that was only a short step off the edge you took because you're not coming back from a big (laughs) fall, right? But what we wound up really doing is we made, um, we would have physicians come to uh, a meeting with the right team or the right ad hoc group of folks to say, you know, we were approached by this company who has, say, this device. And so we'd go through, they knew the, 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 the sort of rules is, what are we doing now? Why is this better than what we're doing? What need is it going to fulfill? How much does it cost versus others? That was sort of towards the end, but really is what's wrong with what we're doing today? What's really the consequences? So we had about five or six of these at least come starting in like 2016, 2017 and continued on. And one of the first ones was this device that patients would have to come into an outpatient surgery center, have some surgery done, and then be sent home with high dollar meds. And then a number of months later, the whole cycle started again. And the cycle was never going to be broken until a company came up with a device that could be placed in the outpatient surgery, but they didn't have to go and take all these high dollar medications. And they wouldn't have to return to the outpatient surgery or even to an ED or whatever for hopefully years, but because Uh it was newer. So we said, if it's going to shift 
you know, care to an outpatient setting at home, and they're not going to have prescriptions, they're not going to have to pay all these high healthcare dollars. It's worth it for us to pay more to have this done because here's what we're going to save in the long run. Say the average over the time of this individual that would have been under our care might have been they might come back six times to have this surgery redone. Well, what we spent in a small amount of an increase for the actual device paid for itself fivefold, tenfold, whatever, in the long run. So what we said we would do and what really is great about the value analysis process, we don't just say, oh, great, we just did something really great. You got to monitor it. Exactly. Where did the data come from? Where's the data going to continue to come from? Do we do it monthly, quarterly, yearly? Leave it up to physicians saying, well, I might only have, you know, uh, 40 cases. So you say, well, quarterly then might be, and we all agree, we're going to get back. We're going to go through the exercise again. Did it do what we said it was going to do? And here's that data since we implemented it. And here was the previous data. And we would check boxes. And we all agreed that if for some reason at the amount of time we were going to leave it, that if we didn't see what we did, we would abandon it and we would all agree to that, just like we agreed to onboard it. Sometimes we used to call them the longest evaluation that you ever heard of. Um, And, you know, but it was reimbursable. We bought the device, everything, but it was really a, a real live, you know, sort of action. And these were, you know, FDA devices and things, but sometimes you just have to go out there. When the first 3D printed spinal implants started, we did one of those and one of the doctors became trained. And what we try to do is how many physicians do we have or surgeons doing certain procedures? And have you talked to your colleagues? And do they know what you're going to be doing? Because that was one of our criteria. And Will any of those also come on board, depending on either how this turned out or at the beginning? Because if you didn't have most everybody in the boat rowing, rowing, somebody being the coxswain, you know, and getting there, then you might have this pocket going on, but the rest of it, it it wasn't, you know, it's cost effective. Right, exactly. So what I'm hearing is that in the whole value analysis equation for, let's say, an IDN or healthcare system, whatever it might be, is you come in and maybe the decision's made because all the stakeholders agree based on the evidence that they've brought in, not that they've actually experienced themselves yet, but that they've brought in that this should be something that that they proceed with or they try. But then it's important that that particular uh, hospital system monitors and gathers its own data to corroborate um, the evidence that they made the decision on in the first place and therefore help, you know, decide that they continue to going forward and or maybe spread it out to more facilities. Right. Right. Okay. Because how our teams ran 
is we also had the finance person who was assigned to these service lines because they would be assigned to a, a lot of them. So I was fortunate enough that like cardiology and the OR had the same finance person. Uh-huh. So they would bring, here's our current reimbursement by all of these payers. And here's the you know percentage and here's what the margins are. And here's what, the, in a very you know prescriptive way, we would work together to work out what that template looked like because we'd wind up scratching our heads saying, okay, let's run it through the formula. And we actually use the value equals quality divided by cost. People just think that's something you read about in a book, but you actually have to use it and apply it. And it works every time. Sure. Um, You know, so we started getting into utilization, not just, you know, one, you know, a product or a service that would come in. And one of the ones that we did that worked really well, it was right up until I retired. So in 2019, was there was a particular device that you could buy it several different ways, but you could buy it through pharmacy distribution, it would uh, count because it was like a drug uh, device combination. Uh And the distributors from pharmacy distribution would carry it. However, OR was buying it itself from the manufacturer and the pharmacy was buying it, but they were buying it at WAC or not even GPO pricing maybe. And, And so we wanted to get to 340B. How could we qualify that? Because, you know, all those things swing with pharmacy. That's a whole nother ball game is pharmacy. I know enough to be dangerous. Okay. Um, but if we then started doing a process improvement, so it was, it came from value analysis and then the EMR and then the physicians in a clinic and the nurses in a clinic and pharmacy and then the um, the patient uh, reimbursement and all that. We came together and we did a whole exercise about it. And it was a matter of we didn't know that we had to document it in a particular place in the medical record in order to be reimbursed or to qualify for 340B pricing. They thought that if they made a documentation that we did this small procedure to the patient and used this particular device, they were done. It was documented. But when we showed them the screens and what the progress is, it was like mouths came open. And the, one of the nurses said, I will take responsibility to make sure that when we're doing this, we're putting things in the right place. We're uh, documenting correctly. And within just a short period of time, we went from pain I'm just going to say $1,000 some, for something to paying $200 for it. Wow. And getting reimbursed where we weren't before. Right. And those swings like that, just one swing like that, several million dollars, reimbursement, less cost. Yeah. So yeah. those are the kinds of things that you have to all work together about and really be very cognizant. 
And the reason why and that's also would, yeah. would you also say that that's some somewhat on the manufacturer to help the the hospital system understand how to best utilize and and get reimbursed for their product? It would be good. Now, yeah. some manufacturers do this really well because yeah. if they provide those value added services, you're more apt to use their product because it comes with like this turnkey, right? Right, right. But some folks might not think of the fact about the reimbursement side. Now, they might not understand that here's how you have to document it in your particular EMR. However, they should have information about that because we as value analysis going to ask those questions. Sure. And so, and in the world of virtual meetings now, it'd be great to have a quality or a reimbursement expert or somebody from your company be able to be on a call even for five minutes to answer questions or to tell you one by, so the rep doesn't have to know absolutely everything. They should be an expert in something so they don't have to deal with all of those pieces of information. I've noticed that some um, uh, startup companies that I've talked to um, have, um, they'll have a, like a chief health research, health economics um, and reimbursement research Mm -hmm. officer. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing that a little bit more um, on companies that really think out their uh, C-suite, you know, um, carefully. Yeah. So for small and and medium sized companies, so I'm talking about, you know, anywhere from zero to a hundred million dollars, you know, what do you think, what are a couple of the mistakes that you see people commonly make as they're approaching the value analysis committee of a value-based care type of culture or organization? They might not have been educated even, you know, to to just the basics about fee-for-service versus value-based care. Right. Just sort of like reimbursement 101, not even very deep or whatever. So there should be a playbook that they have. Now, we call it in our vernacular a VAC pack. Right. And it has a lot of details in it of here's what you should be providing. Here's what you should be answering. And here's what, you know, you should provide these resources, even if they're linked to things or whatever. Websites, I comb through probably, I don't know, 15 of them a week, very, very detailed. And it's great if I can find the IFU and if I can find the reimbursement codes and all those sorts of things. And it does all depend on the, you know, the product itself, whether it's reimbursable or whatever. But anything from an FDA, even if it says it's a class one exempt, you know, whatever that is, patents, uh, anything like that, but have a really well-informed either website, have good presence on social media that leads you back to key information on websites. It's really all about, you know, the mobile ability. You know, I've got, you know, the phone, the the pad, 
computers, uh, all that stuff. If I can't find it, we're in trouble because that's where I go. And um, I can find all kinds of fun stuff in websites and things. And even things that the company folks that have worked there a period of time may not even understand they actually have on their website. So great resources and things. But reps should be or whoever's calling on them or whoever's being educated if they use 1099s or whatever the situation is, they haven't have to have enough collateral so that they're um, they know enough that when a question comes up, they don't just say, I don't know. I'll have to ask. I don't know. I have to ask. I've had some very sort of um, not very factual uh, laden presentations given and sometimes they say well marketing only gave me this or i didn't learn that i'm i'm only i'm still training or whatever it's not a good impression so you want to have a you know a few facts that you could at least look up or let's pull up our website and here's where we could look at that oh here it is and you know i'll send this link to you or whatever so you have to be very savvy these days especially if you're doing a lot of these types of meetings but I guess also mentally or culturally in the manufacturer, you have to have this this attitude that you're going to go in and not just present like um, one data point of improved outcome over all the competitive devices. You're going to be, you have to be able to say, here are the stakeholders that typically get involved in our product in addition mm-hmm. to the patient who benefits in the end. But all along this you know path, of stakeholder involvement. Here's where we help the nurse a little bit. Here's where we reduce the time and the OR a little bit. Here's where we reduce the hospital stay. And then, oh, by golly, we also end up with an improved patient outcome, either as good as, or it's improved. But I've all then in the meantime, I've saved you time, money. So I think you have to go in with a, this type of mentality um, into that whole process. So, okay. Yeah. The stakeholders are really, really important because value analysis can't know every possible service line and every detail about it. And in some of the introduction meetings, we're learning about what the space is so we can invite certain stakeholders or, make sure that we alert a stakeholder that we think this is something based on, you know, where we are with contracting or we don't have anything in this space or it's revolutionary, you know, anything like that, that we might connect, say, the company and the key stakeholder. So it's good for them to be able to tell us, normally it's used in these spaces, but not ever in the OR or not ever in GI or you know, something like that. So that's great. Okay. Awesome. Well, this has really been terrific. I mean, any other final comments you've got? We've covered a ton of ground and, and um, um, yeah, this is definitely going to be two uh, podcasts or whatever, but (laughs) I think you said the key word about mm, 40 minutes ago was there's a whole ecosystem out there. And what does that ecosystem consist of? And it's not just the consumer and the patient, but it's that ton of ecosystem. And one has an effect on the other. 
And you always want to keep that consumer at the middle of what you're doing. I try not to all call them patients because they're not patients unless they're having care is my right. whole thing. Right. So they're a consumer out there, a, 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 a two-legged human being out there, not dissing the vet world. They do great things. But, you know, it, it's keeping that key, you know, um, end user in mind. And by helping the physician, the tech, the lab person, the respiratory, whatever, you're helping the end user help the ultimate end user. Got it. Absolutely. Super. Well, Barbara, thank you very much for your time today. This has been a real education and, um, you know, this will be really interesting to edit because I'm going to be taking a ton of notes, <laughs> which I always do. I always take lots yeah. of notes, but I, this is going to be um, um, really, really interesting to do that. So, again, thank you very much yeah. for being and with I us today. And I will send you my acronym list, the links, and then what kind of information you can find at these uh, different websites and things. Thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you for reaching out. Uh, value analysis has taken a, a bigger role through COVID. Uh, they now really know where we are and who we are. And um, they can have such a, a big role in helping all of healthcare, whether it's suppliers, providers, payers, whatever, really come to some really great improvements uh, for quality and, and costs. So thanks so much for letting us expose that a little bit. More episodes on value-based care are in the works with some really interesting guests. But before I let you go, I have some questions for you. Does your company have a person responsible for supporting value analysis and understanding trends in healthcare? Do you have value analysis packages that take into consideration all the stakeholders that will be affected by your product and or services? If you do, are these packages readily available on your website? And finally, do you have the support collateral, whether it is digital or in print, to use to communicate this information to healthcare professionals? If the answers are yes, you are in great shape. If not all the answers are yes, then some work needs to be done, but you and your colleagues can do it. Much of it is elbow grease. And if you need the perspective of an expert, then you have people like Barbara. Thanks again for listening today. Now go win your week. <laughs>